Thank you, Jason. So with that introduction, we will now call on our brother Mark to lead us in his first class on the tale of two mountains. Okay, let's sort out the technology here. Morning. Morning. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous speech, and we're all intimately familiar with it. And that can be one of the dangers to us is that we become over familiar to it. And we build up these mental blocks where we compartmentalize things and we begin to ignore the actual message in the sermon. So the challenge that I want to put to you today is to listen to the Sermon on the Mount as if you're a first century Jew steeped in the Judaic tradition and the law of Moses. And there's this radical rabbi who has come and is presenting this message to you. And, and if you let Jesus do that, you'll find that his words are inspiring and they're challenging and they will also crush you if you let them. So what is he talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? I propose to you that what Jesus is trying to do is to share with the Jewish people what is righteousness. It's a fundamental question of every religious system, every ethical system, every political system has to define for themselves what is righteousness. And the big conflicts between civilizations in many ways revolves around this question. We're suffering a conflict around this right now, right? In the school system, in the political system, they are changing the definition of righteousness and we are feeling that pressure. So what Jesus is doing is he's challenging their definition of righteousness. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you wanna think of the most concise way to define righteousness, what would it be? You didn't think I'd ask you. And how well you follow the law. Okay, and if you had to say to someone, here is the, the most concise summary that I can give you of, of the fundamentals, you'd go with the Ten Commandments. Thank you. I was hoping somebody would get that answer. So the Ten Commandments. So for 3,500 years, this code of righteousness has been tremendously effective. And if we think of even our legal system today, a lot of it is actually still based on this code from so long ago. But if we consider for a second how these commandments arrived, and we'll look at Exodus chapter 19, and this is from verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. And whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. This is the context of the arrival of the Ten Commandments. What do we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1? 
And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. And all his disciples came to him. Oh, here we go. Different version. So in the very setting in which Jesus is going to present his in, in, approach to defining righteousness, we have a stark contrast to the mosaic summary. And he's going to give us a list, right? Moses came down from the mountain with a list. And now we're going to consider a list. So how does Jesus start? Blessed. Blessed. The first word out of Jesus' mouth when he's providing an image of what righteousness looks like is blessed. And I just want to pause at the very first word, and don't worry, we'll move a little quicker through the chapter than, than, than one word at a time. But do we approach our faith in the same way? When we are going to summarize and describe to someone the essence of what our faith does for us, the essence of what our life consists of, do we lead with the concept of blessing? And I propose to you that very often we don't. Very often we sort of carry that heavy load and that we have a, an example we can take from Jesus here in terms of how we present our message. Now, there are people who leave our community because they grow up among us and they experience our community for years and they never internalize in their heart the idea that we are blessed to be here. They leave because they feel some kind of burden. They feel some kind of weight. They feel something like our faith should be about liberation. Our faith is about freedom. Our faith is about hope, about being God's chosen people. And yet so many people can listen to our presentations for years. They can come to our CYCs in our Bible class and they walk away and they say, this is, this is too heavy for me. When, whenever that happens, we need to really look back at ourselves and say, where did we go wrong? Where were we out of balance in how we presented our message? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. This is a privilege to be here. It's a blessing. It's an opportunity. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? And, and we'll get to that in, in, the, in the Beatitudes. And then Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Now, again, Jesus is going to continually surprise us through this, through this topic. Because if I said to you, I'm so blessed because I'm poor, you would say you're crazy, right? We, we would not associate those two concepts together. When we were introducing the idea of blessedness to someone, poverty would not be where we would start. In fact, in most cases, we would assume the exact opposite, right? In society at large, the very definition of blessing has become something akin to wealth. And so the challenge and, and Paul addresses this later on, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. In the first phrase, Jesus is challenging us to disconnect the idea and the concept of blessing 
from some kind of situation you may experience in your life right now, whether it's a health situation, whether it's an economic situation, whether it's a social situation, what we're going to see throughout these Beatitudes is that you can be blessed independent of the circumstances that you're in. It's a radical concept that everything in the world around us and in our heart rebels against that notion. We are convinced that the way we feel is a consequence of the circumstances that we're in. And Jesus is telling you right from the start, that's not the case. You have a choice. And then he says, in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, you may say it's unfair of me to focus on poverty because he's clearly spiritualizing here. But in the Luke account, he just says, blessed are the poor. And he leaves it at that. And what we see here is a common thing that Jesus does, which is he takes the physical and he spiritualizes it. Right. There is a poverty that we can experience, but there's also a poverty of spirit. And we'll see this uh, all throughout Jesus' teaching in um, Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You go, okay, liberty to the captives. When did Jesus ever go into the prison and set people free? Right? He clearly never did that. The recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we see in Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So we're going to see the constant spirit spiritualization we're going to see it in the case of mourning we're going to see it in hungering and thirsting and in other cases through the beatitudes so let me come back to the notion of the beatitudes we said we're blessed we're starting on the premise of being blessed all throughout how is a list of blessings a definition of righteousness that's that's kind of odd Okay, the attributes that Jesus talks about here, they're not even commandments, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say you should be poor in spirit. You must be poor in spirit. He just makes an observation. You're poor in spirit, you will be blessed. So just keep in mind, what, what a difference in approach we have from, from Jesus here. We have a different teacher, a different mountain, and a different list. So now let's dive into them in, in more detail. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And in the uh, NASB minister's Bible, it says those who are not spiritually arrogant. Okay, now why would Jesus lead with blessed are the poor in spirit? Why, of all the things he could lead with, why is that his first beatitude, do you think? He's talking to what about who he's talking to? Okay, and why would poor in spirit be an appropriate? Uh... They were in an elevated position. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so th there's actually two layers here, right? What we're going to see throughout each of those beatitudes is that every one of them is going to poke 
at the scribes and the Pharisees and their whole approach to religion and their whole approach to righteousness. So when you say, well, you know what's really great is the people who are poor in spirit, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to feel left out of that category, right? Because that's not generally how they approach religion. Now, in terms of for us, how does being poor in spirit be uh, serve as a good foundation for us? God will dwell with those who are crushed in spirit. Why? Like for sure. But what is it about being crushed in spirit? We see the need for him in our lives. That's right. You are open to answers to questions. You haven't figured it all out yet, right? When you're poor, you don't have enough. When you're broken, you need to be made whole. You're looking for something. And, and one of the biggest problems we have as humans is that we know the answer to things. And the moment you know the answer, the moment you've solved the question, the moment you figured it out, you have stopped. That's it. There's no more spiritual growth. What would you grow into? You've already figured it out. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, because you know what? Only the poor in spirit are probably going to get past the first beatitude. Right? Everyone else has figured it all out. Right? They're somewhere else doing their thing. But the people who are hungry and are going, I, I need something, I'm still missing something, they're going to listen to the rest of this sermon. One slide behind Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this again is, uh, there's a, is Jesus just saying, you know, anybody who's lost a relative recently is blessed? We were talking about this, uh, they brought it up at the readings last night, right? That just mourning is not in and of itself some kind of holy attribute, right? Everybody mourns. Um, so in what way is Jesus um, saying that those who mourn are blessed? And I propose to you, and I think I've got a slide for this. Oh, yeah, Nehemiah chapter one. He says, this is Nehemiah's prayer. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a good job. Right? He was set. He was not poor. He didn't have any immediate problems. But when he became aware of the suffering and the poor condition of other people, he mourned. Right? His mourning was a consequence of loving other people. And this is one of the big paradoxes in life is that the more you love other people, the more you will suffer. And suffering is unpleasant and painful by definition. So a lot of people manage that suffering by caring less, right? You can just say, you know what? You do your thing, I don't care. And you will feel the weight go off of your shoulders. But when you come to the ecclesia and you're just eaten up inside, when you hear your neighbor and how hopeless his life is, when you encounter the people at work and, and the consequences of sin that are destroying their lives, and it just weighs on you, right? Why would it weigh on you? Because you love them. 
And if you're happy to see them go off the rails and, 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 and into trouble, this blessing isn't for you. We mourn in proportion to how much we love. And therefore, we are blessed if we mourn. Now, how is this poking at the scribes and the Pharisees? That's not something they mourn about, right? Right? They're not particularly concerned about in a, in a mourning sense. They may be concerned with what other people do, but but it's not very much from a, from a sense of oh, I'm so you know caring and, and I'm concerned about this person's fate. Um, and we see this also Matthew 23. Jesus said this: Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. The thing that I find fascinating about this is that Jesus is mourning for Jerusalem and in the process, he describes what kind of people are in Jerusalem, right? The people who kill prophets and stone those who are sent to them. Now that's love. Right. If you can mourn for people who are that wicked, that's love. And that's something we should aspire to. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I, I meant I've titled this the unexpected sermon on the mount. Blessed are the meek. OK, you're a first century Jew, for they shall inherit the earth like you're under Roman occupation, like how is meekness ever going to put you in a position of power? And this is the same problem we have today, right? Like meekness does not put people in positions of power. They do not inherit the earth. The people trying to inherit the earth right now are exactly the opposite of meekness. And, and again, how does this poke at the scribes and the Pharisees? Meekness was... <laughs> They were trying to inherit, right? Like in the crucifixion of Jesus, well, we, we've got to kill this man because he is going to threaten our position, right? Our inheritance, as, as meager as it was under the Roman occupation, that little bit, they were willing to kill innocent people in order to preserve that, the opposite of meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the verse I love in relation to this here is 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I sense in here a hunger and a thirst, right? So when you feel the, the trials and you see the catastrophes on earth, what is your reaction to that? Right? Do you get angry at God? Do you go, how, how could this happen? Or does it fill you with a longing for things to be better? So, so that when Jesus arrives, you're like, finally, like this is the moment that I've been waiting and living for. At this moment, everything is going to be okay. Now, if we're scribes and Pharisees, now they weren't necessarily think of, of Jesus in the terms of judgment, but if we've absorbed their view of religion, how might we feel about Jesus appearing? 
Okay, there's gonna be some anxiety in there, right? So this is where we have to consider that we're used to talking about the scribes and the Pharisees over there, and we're here on that other side and looking at them. There's a little bit of scribe and Pharisee in every single one of us, right? And so when we think of Jesus arriving at this very moment, do you love his appearing or does that stress you out a little bit, right? Are you really hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Because that's what Jesus is going to bring. He's going to bring righteousness. Is that a world you want to live in? And how do you feel in terms of your relationship with Jesus? Okay. Would you feel blessed if he walked through right now? And if you don't, we have work to do. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Ah, now here's some's a real jab at the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And the fundamental problem with mercy is that it seems in direct opposition to law. Like if, if you have a rule and people break it, and then there are no consequences to them breaking it, what's the point of having a rule at all, right? The whole foundation of, of, of rules and commandments and order and structure depends on not having mercy. You can't just be willy-nilly merciful. It undermines the whole foundation. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we see our discipleship? Are we, in, are we the custodians of the rules? Are we the ones who make sure thus far you shall go and no further? Blessed are the merciful. Now, I've noticed something interesting about my personal levels of mercy. So I've charted them out here on, I'm a computer guy, so I've charted them out on a, on a, on a chart. And on this scale, we have the, the amount of mercy that I'm inclined to exhibit. And on this axis, I have the amount of time. And it's the amount of time since I have made a very public mistake. I've failed in a way that is unavoidable and that everybody knows that I yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Lost my temper. You know, I, there's any number of, of ways to fail publicly. And what I find is in that first hour after I have failed publicly, I am so full of mercy. Like if if I like if if I spill a dish in the kitchen and then my kid comes along and knocks over a bowl of cereal, I'm like, it's okay. It's like that those things happen, right? Let me help you clean it up. Right. That first hour is great. You know, by six hours, 12 hours, by the next morning, I'm, I'm at number eight. You know, it's like, yeah, I can remember that yesterday I spilled my milk. But if you were a little more careful when you came around the corner, then, you know, maybe we wouldn't have these accidents. By a week later, two weeks, one month, it's more like, what are you doing? You know, yes, it was an accident. But if you were more careful, you know, these things wouldn't happen. So, there's now there's power in here, and this is why I want to. I mentioned crushing, and it was mentioned earlier. There's a side effect to acknowledging being crushed. The longer you can stay crushed, the more merciful you will be. And when that crushed feeling, when you leave it behind, when you kind of forget about it, and when you fade it, that's where your sense of order and structure and well we just can't 
let anything happen here. Like, you know, there's certain standards that must be upheld. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll come, I know there's nuance here. We'll come back to that. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Now, the other point I want to make here is blessed are the merciful. Not just blessed is the person who once upon a time in one event uh, displayed some mercy. It's blessed are people who have an abundance of mercy. Now, how do you put yourself in a situation where you have continual opportunity to show mercy? What does your environment have to consist of? People, what, what people would be the most helpful in growing your sense of uh, mercifulness? Sinners. People who are making mistakes. Now, making mistakes in general, that's helpful. But if you really want to uh, uh, sort of take your mercy up a notch, what should these people be doing? Things against you. They should be really offending you in a completely unjustifiable and unfair way. Right, where, where on no basis whatsoever, they're holding a grudge, they're holding a resentment, they're expecting you to, like, they, they're saying things behind your back. Like, this is where you need to be if you want to be in this category, right? It's a necessary precondition. You simply cannot be a merciful person around perfect people. So we should be thankful that we are in the families and ecclesias that we are, right? Because they fill our days with these opportunities for mercy. Now, a fascinating thing, I was watching a, a, an online, a preacher online, and he was getting big into, you know, what Jesus did for us. And then he got into the atonement, and he was like, you know, what Jesus did for us is there, there's all this, uh, you know, God is righteous, and you're evil, so the only way we can solve evil is by killing an innocent man. And I'm like, like do you not read the rest of scripture? Like, like they, they don't believe in mercy. They don't see any escape for sin other than somebody must pay. And, and I don't know, I don't know, I can't understand how they see God as just when he's, you know, killing an innocent man in, in that substitutionary way. And it's a little bit of an aside, but it just shocked me. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's send attention get her again, because nobody can see God, right? So listeners are going to be going, oh, okay, uh, how does that work? Um, but we know Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. And this is another exercise that I'll leave to you for homework, but all these beatitudes have all kinds of cross-references through the Old Testament to blessing, 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 all through the Old Testament. Now, I struggled with this one because, I mean, your heart is your heart, and there it is, and it's full of all those things that you put in it over the years and all those things you concocted yourself. How does one go about 
being pure in heart? What, what can I do tomorrow and the day after? Like, I, I can't just be pure in heart. Like, it's there, right? Like, there, there's no physical thing I can do to, to, to get this thing away from me. Oh, who said that? Yes. Okay. So your heart has what it has, and it's not good, right? So if you have a big jug of, of polluted water, okay, it's it's there, and 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 that's that's what you're working with. But the least you can do is put in some pure distilled water into it, right? And every little little bit of that that you can do, what it does is it dilutes the other stuff. And while you'll never ever reach absolute distilled water purity, it is a continual process of making sure that the things that are going into your heart are contributing to purification and not to corruption. Now, scribes and Pharisees listening to this, blessed are the pure in heart, in their worldview, how is this, how are they going to react to this? What's a, what's a Pharisee's general view on the purity of your heart? So you can make it pure by following the law. So you can make it pure by following the law. That's an, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. They are already pure. They're either or they're already pure. Um, I propose to you. Sorry, was well, some... impurity comes from the Yeah, so that you know you shouldn't eat and you shouldn't. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah. So so there's there's all these rules, but th that's kind of a, a ritual purity. That that fundamental question of whether your actions are motivated by the sincerest of motives, right? How much does a Pharisee care about that? And the answer is they generally don't, right? Like if you did the thing, then whether your heart was pure when you did it is somewhat irrelevant, right? Who knows? How would you measure that, right? Like, like I, I, would, I wouldn't know, right? Like if, if you're measuring purity by number of hours of attendance, I can do that, right? I, I can make a chart and I can say, you're at this level and this person's at this level. But what if somebody was more pure in heart? Like, I don't know, like I, you can't tell. And therefore it becomes outside of the scope of what they worry about, generally speaking. And to that point, they define purity. They change the meaning of the word to be, well, how many hours were you there? Or, you know, how, how religious do you appear? And so we, it's something we have to worry about. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is another one of those ones that peace with who, right? We don't want to make peace with the world, but peace uh, amongst ourselves. Uh, we want to be peacemakers. Um, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We have a movement sweeping our society that says the definition of righteousness is that I should never say anything which you might find upsetting, right? And therefore, they would say, we are peacemakers. You know, don't say things against what we believe. That's not 
what Jesus is talking about here, right? Uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. It's not always going to depend on us. If By simply advocating biblical principles, we will encounter conflict. Now, what is the situation in a community when you increase legalism and the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees? What effect does that have on peace? almost always a negative effect, right? When, when people come in with a legalistic point of view, and I'm going to talk about people, and, and you might be thinking about this person or that person. When I say people, I mean you, right? And I mean me. And I mean every one of us has this battle inside us between this rules-based, observable, rigid system and what we know we should be, but we are not yet. And so when we have issues of conflict in our relationships, families, and ecclesias, we have to ask ourselves, is there some degree of, of legalism involved here? And is this what Jesus is getting at here? Blessed are the persecuted, and there's a whole number of verses here, and we know from Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about all the people who suffered so much, Again, the Pharisees, not super excited about being persecuted, right? They, they much prefer to be on the other uh, side of that equation, right? And, and ferreting out the people who have stepped over a line and making sure that, uh, that they're um, uh, in line. The other thing here is that there's a question of status, of who is at the top and who is at the bottom. And the persecuted people, by definition, are at the bottom of the hierarchy socially and in every respect. And, and part of what Jesus is saying here is that if you're at the bottom of a hierarchy, and we talked about being merciful, and people are mistreating you in some way, this is actually a privileged position. This is one of those moments where you can actually be Christ-like, right? Christ was persecuted. He was murdered. He was tortured. You want to be Christ-like Accept the situations where people will persecute you without bitterness and without um, revenge. So, context. We were looking, we started with the Ten Commandments. Now, if you had to summarize from the Ten Commandments, the recurring theme within the Ten Commandments, what would you say? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. And interestingly enough, eight times in the Ten Commandments, we have the phrase, thou shalt not. And eight times Jesus comes forward here in the Sermon on the Mount with a beatitude. And what we have to think about here is what is our fundamental philosophy of religion? What is our fundamental view of righteousness and how we define it? Is it defined by a long list of thou shalt nots? Or is it defined by a principle of blessing? Do we see our faith as one of privileges or one of prohibitions? Do we see it as a blessing or as a burden? The Beatitudes are not something that Jesus commands. It's just something he observes. It's an aspirational message. He's just letting you know, this is information. You want to be a part of this community? 
You want to be a part of the blessed community. These are the character attributes. All of them are unmeasurable. Very frustrating. How am I doing in mourning today? How am I doing in hungering and thirsting? Yeah, there's no, there's nothing tangible for me to hold on to. And, and we're going to get into a lot of tangible things in the next sections. But I want you to try to remember through this whole series, this is where Jesus starts. This is his foundation. Blessing and broad spiritual principles. Then we get salt and light. And now we shift from purely sort of spiritual into actual activities. And there's a, there's a lot of debate when you read the literature on what Jesus means by salt and light. But I think that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And, and if the salt doesn't bring that salty quality, then it becomes absolutely useless. You are the light of the world. And, and where in scripture have I, have I heard this notion of, of being a, a blessing in the whole world? And for me, I go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what I think Jesus is telling us with the salt and the light is that, okay, we've spent some time in meditation and contemplation, and we've considered these principles. And if you don't live in a way that these are noticeable, then it's absolutely pointless. Right? You might as well chuck the salt out. What's the point of having salt in a recipe if it does not affect the taste? What's the point of you being a disciple of Christ and going out into the world if nobody can tell that you're there? Right? If you can work next to someone eight hours a day, you know, five days a week, month after month, and they have no idea that you have a light then the whole thing was pointless, right? It doesn't matter how many hours of Bible study and how many Bible classes and how many Bible schools, none of that matters if you go out and spend a bunch of time with, with people and they can't tell. And they go, oh, it's just Canadians. God, Canadians are so polite, right? You're just, you're just another Canadian. This is the first major risk that we encounter here, right? Principles are great. They must manifest in your daily relationships. Do the people in your life feel it that you are a disciple of Christ in your family? Right? This is the, the, the big challenge. Does our faith make any difference? So Jesus sets this stage. And I believe he's deliberately contrasting his message with the law of Moses, with the Ten Commandments specifically. And uh, maybe I'll get you to ask. I know I've been letting you off easy, not making you turn off a lot of passages, turn up a lot of passages. But if you look up Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at some verses in Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll think about. The two mountains here. And we'll start at verse 18. 
for you have not come to what may be touched. Uh, and again, touched. There's we're talking about what's measurable, right? Being pure in heart, that's not a measurable thing. So you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message should be spoken to them. Is this how we show forth our religion and our faith to people around us? For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Is that how we approach our belief? As a big, scary mountain, as clouds, as lightning, earthquakes, and fear. Then Hebrews 12, 22, but we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is calling us to his mountain, and we have to choose in our daily life and in the way we live our religion, whether we are standing at the Mosaic mountain, or are we standing at the mountain that Jesus is calling us to? Sorry, a few slides behind. And then, if we go back to Matthew chapter 5... Jesus surprises us again. All this time, the people who are, and there's a fancy word for this, antinomians. Antinomians are against legalism, so they're the other side of legalism. They've been cheering this whole time, right? Jesus is sort of opposing the, the law. He's opposing this legalistic view of religion. And then he says in verse 17... Hold on, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, and this, this is part of the reason I think Jesus has structured all this himself. He's challenging the law and the prophets, but he's not, right? And, and we're going to have to wrestle with this through the rest of this series. Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, Sometimes when we say, oh, we're not going to be legalists, the, the, the comfortable space we move into is we say, then the rules don't matter, right? I'm approaching God without fear because there are no rules and I can do whatever I want. And that's why I have such peace in my heart when I approach Jesus. And Jesus is going, uh, no, you know, that is not the message. That would be a misunderstanding of the message that I'm putting to you today and then so at this point in my mind's eye I see the Pharisees on the sideline going yeah you know this is great you tell them you know they thought they were gonna you know go with the you know that fuzzy easy approach to religion and then Jesus gets to verse 20 where he says unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to put yourself again in the shoes of a first century Jewish baker and what he imagines in the pharisaical life. In their world, the pharisaical life is the good life, right? This is the pinnacle of righteousness. These are the people who know all the books. They've memorized huge tracts. They spend day after day studying and debating. They have every physical and obvious manifestation of righteousness, right? They correct me. I go to them for teaching, right? These are the university professors of our religious system. And this man is telling me that unless I, as a humble baker, exceed the righteousness of those people, I cannot be in the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely mind-boggling. How can that be true? How does this not immediately put the kingdom of heaven out of reach for every ordinary person? The scribes and Pharisees work all their lives to attain that level, and that level isn't good enough. And where does that leave you? And that's the topic that we'll look at next class. But I want to leave you with a reminder of where Jesus started. We're going to get into the law and examine some of the elements of the law. Remember that Jesus started with the principle that you are to be a blessing. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Mark. And we are just going to